Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Hall of Justice Comic Cast. As always, I'm your host, the Above Average Joe, and with me again is... Mighty Mike! Mike, get out of the pool. Sorry. And today we are actually doing a special on Aquaman, one of the most underappreciated members of the superhero community. Abso-freaking-lutely. Let's just go ahead and come out and say it. Yep. There's a stigma around Aquaman, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't believe I'm going to quote Big Bang Theory, but everyone Mm. knows Aquaman sucks, which is not true. It's it's so not true. You know, we're leading into this basically stigma that we're going to be talking about because it's pervasive. Oh, yeah. And it's It's pervasive through all media and pop culture. The the stigma around Aquaman is more of a fixture in pop culture than Aquaman is. Yes. Um, and, that, and that goes back quite a way. Unfortunately, some of it is kind of earned, especially yeah. from his earlier years in comics. We'll get into it. But we'll talk about that. But let's let's break down the, the stigma here. There's the concept that Aquaman is weak or unusable. Mm-hmm. He, he can't do anything. All he can do is talk to fish. Talk to fish. Which, one, not true. Doesn't nope. talk to them. And we'll talk about that later in Jeff Aqua John's Kinetics. run. Yep. Um, we'll, t- we'll talk about his perceived lack of strength, because he's actually much physically stronger oh. than one would expect. Yes. Gone toe-to-toe with Superman plenty of times. On multiple occasions, and he's come out the victor on yes. a couple of them, so there's that. But unfortunately, a lot of the stigma not just is, is not just baked in from the early 40s and 50s comics, because everything was kind of goofy back then. Uh, in the 40s, he was a little more baseline as a character, but a lot of that, that current stigma evolves from the 50s and 60s. Unfortunately. Yeah, which is true of a lot of characters in and of themselves, but it, it hit Aquaman pretty hard. Yes. So let's let's dive into I mean, his... It, it gets bad when it pervades other forms of media. It does. When you have Family Man making fun of Aquaman, when you have South Park making fun of Aquaman, like, it's... Uh, it, it's it's gotten pretty bad and it's it has but it's also reached a point of being a meta narrative and i'll talk about yes. that later on in some of the, the books that have addressed that that stigma and actually just a little bit of kind of history for everybody listening so a lot of that stigma comes from unfortunately the super friends cartoon show that mm. was throughout 70s and it's kind of interesting that that show helped popularize some of the stigma when in the very intro to that show he is listed as Say being he is being Say it. He is listed as being one of the four greatest superheroes in the cosmos. Yep. So, <laughs> irony. And then he got kicked out, and they're like, but Trinity sounds better. Yeah. Mm. So, let's talk about his history. Absolutely. Let's dig into it. So, Aquaman was created in 1941. First appeared in More Fun Comics, number 73. Great which man. is kind of a, a trend that a lot of DC characters have uh, appearing in the anthology books with Superman in Action Comics, Batman in Detective Comics, and Wonder Woman in Sensational Comics. Just in comics in general, like we have uh, Tales from Mystery and uh, a lot of comics along those lines talk about the anthologies. A lot of amazing characters just went out of those. Yeah, and that was the the main form of comics at the time, really before the age of superheroes dawned. Yes. So he's invented right at the start of World War II, and he is created by Paul Norris and Mort Weisinger. Mort Weisinger mm-hmm. also created Green Arrow, another DC character that has gone through a bit of a, a cultural shift mm-hmm. in recent years. And Aquaman was primarily, again, during the wartime, focused on Nazi U-boat commanders. Yes. Where a lot of characters in the World War II era were 
thrown into the fight. Uh, you had Wonder Woman specifically fighting Nazis. You had Superman as well. Uh, there's a very well-known daily comic where Superman flies over and basically essentially ends the war by capturing both Hitler and Stalin. Um, Batman and Robin comics were actually used to sell war bonds. Mm-hmm. So it was very, very you know, for the times for Aquaman to be taking the fight directly to the enemy Navy. While the storytelling was simplistic, he was still very heroic. He was a powerhouse in his own right. Taking on full-blown Nazi U-boats. Yeah, so he wasn't in the kiddie pool. But we did see a bit of a shift post-war and going into the 50s. Um, Predominantly early to Mm mid-50s, again, because of... Seduction of the Innocent, which for those of our listeners who don't know, Seduction of the Innocent was a novel penned by Frederick Wortham. He was a... The bane of comics. Pretty much. He was a psychiatrist who basically said that all comics were subversive and were were pointing everyone to violence and that there was a yep. actual... This is really kind of the origin of the phrase gay agenda. Yes. He pointed a lot of that at Batman and Robin, and because there was such an influence in just calling out of DC Comics characters, there was a massive shift in publishing initiatives uh-huh. in DC from all titles. I mean, we saw the impact hardest, most directly, in Batman and Robin because they were singled out, but a lot of it hit Aquaman. He went from being the king of the seas and fighting Nazis to pretty much just swimming around in circles. I like to say it was influenced by a campaign of camp because that's what it felt like. It was a bunch of camp. It was. It, it, got, was. it gets ridiculous, uh, corny, over the top, just for the sake of camp. Uh, just so we that nobody could possibly be offended and literally watered down as much as possible. Absolutely. It was the comics equivalent of Jay Leno. He was popular mm-hmm. because he didn't offend anybody. A lot of this happened here in, in the Silver Age of comics, so going through the late 50s and the 60s, we saw even more camp being introduced into the book. He was actually given a weakness where he could not be away from water for more than 24 hours. It's ridiculous. And that's that's part of the stigma that's rolled into today of why he is such a ridiculous, weak character. They're like, oh, he has to... like. Uh, I'll talk more about it later, but it's just oh, ridiculous, and the that, water weakness. The water weakness actually lasted until the late 90s, early yeah. 2000s, until writers finally realized, this is stupid, let's yeah. get rid of it. And then it just kind of went away. Yeah. Like all the various versions of kryptonite went away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in the 60s, we saw a bit of evolution into his supporting cast. Yes. Throughout the late 50s and going into the 60s, we saw the introduction of Aqualad. We had a lot to make up for in the supporting cast, considering in, in the 50s he had an octopus. An octopus as a sidekick. Oh, yeah. Just ridiculous. Oh, yeah. He had an octopus. He was... They introduced uh, riding around but... on the uh, the seahorse, which still stuck around for quite like, a while, but... You're kidding me. I know. So they introduce Aqualad, who is actually a an orphan from an Atlantean mm-hmm. village. Yes, he became the adopted prince of Atlantis. Yes, and Aquaman began to basically teach him the ways and, and how to become a fighter in and of itself. And it's interesting here because while there's a lot of stigma around Aquaman, there hasn't always been a stigma around Aqualad. It's no, interesting. Surprisingly enough. Uh, Aqualad be- went on to join the, t- the Teen Titans and then the new Teen Titans. Uh, mm-hmm. He's become a very powerful powerful character in and of himself, especially in modern incarn- incarnations. Yes, Tempest. But Aqualad was kind of lumped in the same category with Robin, where he's, he was almost stigma-free for a point. Yeah. However, they also introduced a love interest for Aquaman by the name of Mira. Mira's Mira is an amazing character in current years. In the, her, her current origins... Current years. In her origins, she was very much a 
damsel in distress. Mm-hmm. She had all the same abilities as Aquaman, with the exception of being able to communicate with sea life, because yes. that is actually a hereditary trait passed down From through his, his bloodline. Yes, the Queen of Atlantis uh, and all of House Atlan. Like he's the only person able to do that. The one still thing in interesting before we move on to the rest of the supporting cast, touching on his his origins, he's 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 a very interesting thing for most DC characters. They've origins have been all over the place. In all his incarnations, his origins has been rather consistent. The only difference from the original origin and the origin of today is that his father, uh, Tom Curry, went out on a shipping boat and there was a storm and the ship got wrecked and there was a woman stranded and that was Atlana, Aquaman's mother, and he rescues her, brings her from a boat, they fall in love, get pregnant, have a child, she turns out to be Queen of Atlantis, etc. The only thing that differentiates the original origin story from the current one is that we got some, uh, we got a little flip of the switch here and Atlana saves Tom from drowning and takes him to shore and falls in love with him. There were minor changes, like in the original one, he wasn't a fisherman, he was an, like a deep sea diver. Yeah. Um, the only real change, and it was quickly undone, was in uh, 1988 when they relaunched his series, I think it was Volume mm. 3 of Aquaman, and he was the son of Atlanta and an Atlantean wizard with no known name. Yeah. It, we're just... It, yeah. Mm. Unfortunately, Aquaman, a lot of his stigma has also been... Has also been fed from the comics because mm-hmm. there has been such instability in his creative yes. staff. Yes. It's literally been a fish out of water. They didn't know what to do with him. Yeah, exactly. Now, not to say that he is, you know, unusable as a character. He's actually mm-hmm. a founding member of the Justice League. He yes. was actually a member of the Justice League before Superman and Batman were. Yep. Because the Justice League was founded by Green Lantern, Flash, Aquaman, Martian Manhunter, and Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. And Superman and Batman joined later. Pivoting back to the to supporting cast, let's talk about Mera, because she has gone through just as much of an evolution as Arthur has. Absolutely. She was introduced very much the, the damsel in distress. Oh, I can't do anything. Like All I can do is swim and get stuck in things uh-huh. and call out for help. And that's not the case anymore. Nowadays, she is an absolute badass. She is the badass of badasses. As a matter she of has- fact... She took on the entire Justice League and wiped the floor with them in a current run of Justice League in in one issue. Uh, And we'll get to that with New 52 run. But needless to say, she is a powerhouse. Absolutely. They've completely reinvented her as a character. So you have Mera, and she was introduced as a love interest and Mm -hmm. kind of a a lost princess from another Atlantean kingdom. Outlaw kingdom, yeah. They married, and that was it. In current times, It was the Australia of the ocean. It was a... Atlantean penal colony. Yep, Zabel. Now she is not from. Uh, she's from Zabel, but Zabel has been redefined. Yes. it is. No, it's still an Atlantean penal colony, but it is actually an interdimensional prison. Mm-hmm. So she's from another plane of existence. And she was trained to to kill Arthur and raised by her uh, her father to do so. And she so she's fully capable assassin, uh, the, one of the the world's foremost and most powerful aquakinetic, which means she can literally control any body of water with her mind. She can literally dehydrate people at a moment's notice, draw all the moisture out of their body. She's undergone quite an evolution in her mm-hmm. power set. Uh, but not just as her, in her power set, as her general attitude. Uh, Mero originally was, again, like I said, I keep saying damsel in distress. But it fits. She was the peach of the ocean. Yeah. And nowadays, she is a strong, confident woman. She is... Her, her biggest learning curve is surface life. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is very disinterested in surface life, but begins to understand it because of her love of Arthur for Arthur. It. And it's part of who he is. And Arthur is, you, you said, fish out of water. Mm-hmm. He is very caught up uh, in terms of 
character dynamic because he's constantly forced to choose between Atlantis and the surface world, the world he knows. Yeah, we're going to get deep into that duality that well, he's starting going through. Let's explore it a little bit because there's a couple of supporting characters who kind of represent that duality. Mm-hmm. First, you've got Volko, who is a on-again, off-again ally of Arthur's. Yes. He's, a, I guess you could describe him as a frenemy. He knows that Arthur is the rightful heir to the throne, but... He also doesn't really always want him to be king because he's very pro surface world. Mm-hmm. And he also cares about Arthur deeply. He and does. That, and that he's a, uh, a surrogate son uh, to him. Uh, he was he was the chief advisor to his mother Alana uh, before she was killed, and is very much on Arthur's side. He just wants what's best for him. But that doesn't always always align with what Arthur thinks is best for him. So that leads them into conflicts. But he is a very much a surrogate father figure that he that he very much loves Aquaman. Very much so. And on the flip side of that, we've got Dr. Shin, who mm-hmm. is an interesting character. He was actually a marine biologist yes. that was obsessed Arthur's with father, Atlantis. Uh, he was obsessed with finding Atlantis, but Arthur's father also took him took Arthur to, to meet Dr. Shin because of the strange abilities he was manifesting. His the son ability, played in the ocean for an hour without coming up for air. Yeah. The ability to draw all the fish in a fish tank near him. So Dr. Shin saw this, and adding in his understanding of Atlantean mythology and his search for it, really kind of began to manipulate Arthur. Well, he trying to him for find... the longest time, too. He, he taught him how to use his powers and to be comfortable with who he is. But as a scientist, he had that pressure and that urge to be acknowledged. And so he started to, like you said, manipulate him. And he wanted to go public. He wanted to say, because he believed Atlantis was real his whole life. And he had been thrown out and made fun of. This was his chance, his vindication to say, I was right. Y'all were all wrong. I want to shove it in your face. And that's a huge motivation for somebody whose whole life was ruined and them being right. And then not being able to say that they were right. Exactly. And that... That confrontation, that those conflicting ideas, is actually what draws Arthur into to issues with, with Doctor Shin. Mm-hmm. He'll he'll trust him when he needs him, but he'll only trust him so far. But let's talk about those conflicts there. So you've got a big supporting cast of villains. See, mm-hmm. it's interesting in with Aquaman, where a lot of superheroes, there's a, a definitive split between rogues gallery and supporting cast. Yes. But this is more of a rotating door. Not just that, but Arthur has very personal connections to all of his main villains. Yes. Uh, Ocean Master is actually his brother Orm. Mm-hmm. Who in the latest incarnation is not not really an enemy. More, He's a friend and he loves Arthur with all his heart. But it's, it's the conflicts that he's drawn in as the ruler of Atlantis before Arthur takes the throne. Exactly. It, and in older continuities, he was very much the mustache twirling, Mwahaha, mm-hmm. I'm here to steal your kingdom. So yeah, he, he wasn't even an Atlantean in older continuities. He's gone back and forth between yes. being his blood brother on the surface world to being his, Atlant- his Atlantean half-brother. There's been various continuities at play as much as Aquaman and Mera and the rest of the supporting cast have evolved. Mm-hmm. But you have Orm, or Ocean Master, who he's had a very tenuous relationship with. He's he served as his counsel at, for, at times when Arthur was king of Atlantis. He's been a constant enemy at times. There is Black Manta, his mm-hmm. most well-known villain, who is an Atlantean and not an Atlantean. He is a treasure hunter. Treasure hunter. Who in recent in recent years was drawn into conflict with Arthur at a young age before he even became yes. Aquaman. And cuz Arthur killed his father. Exactly. Thought, unintentionally. Un- unintentionally. And Arthur thought that his father 
was killed by Black Manta as well, but then it was later found out that he had a heart attack from stress and that he died of the heart attack, not from Black Manta. Exactly. So there's a real sense of the father thing yes. going on between the two of them, and they have one of the most bitter rivalries between hero and villain. Uh, Aquaman and Black Manta is really right up there with Joker and Batman. Absolutely. They are synonymous. It, uh, it's, they are inter- intertwined. It, they are so closely intertwined. There's also a handful of other secondary supporting characters that have gone back and forth with mm-hmm. being heroes, being villains, being completely sidelined. So let's go from Black Manta and actually talk about Black Manta's son, mm-hmm. uh, Jackson Hyde, or as fans of the Young Justice mm-hmm. cartoon show will know him, Cal Duram, who is the second Aqualad. Yep. And a very powerful sorcerer in his own right. Yes. Much the same way that Tempest became uh, a sorcerer. Aqualad walks that same path. Uh, yes, Calderon walks that same path. Got a, he has strong aquakinetic skills, whereas uh, Garth Tempest was a, a member of the Silent School, and we'll get into the, the mythos of that a little bit, uh, but can doing with magical powers versus Esper powers. So, yes, it's, 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 he's a very interesting character, especially coming from one of Aquaman's most dangerous nemesis to be his son and be evolved on the good side of good. Yeah, it throws a lot of amazing conflict in there. Yes. There's also Tula, the very first Aqua Girl. Yes, speaking of Tula, we're, second, we're talking about the, the power girl of Mira um, and the evolution of strong female characters in Aquaman. Aquaman is actually really known once you read the, through the everything in uh, its current incarnation. It's really known from taking strong female characters who were once seen as weak and damsels in distress we previously talked about and, and making them impactful, strong, powerful female characters. Well, Tula yeah, because off, Mira is best friends with Diana. Yes, and, and Tula started off as a girlfriend for Aqualad. That was it. Mm-hmm. She was just a love interest. In current mythos, she's strategic, she's smart, she's intelligent, and oftentimes when Arthur leaves uh, Atlantis to do hearing things or to just he, where he can't be at home, he leaves Tula in charge as regent of all of Atlantis. Mm-hmm. So he trusts Tula to rule the entire oceans. You know, you mentioned ruling the entire ocean. So let's talk about the breadth of Aquaman's kingdom. Yes. Because he's not just king of Atlantis. He is ruler of, of the, oceans. the seas. The seven yes. seas are his to rule. So that effectively makes him the monarch of 70 to 73% of the world. He's most influential, most powerful monarch on Earth rules most of Earth. And it's funny, because not a lot of storytelling is focused on that. And in fact, it really wasn't until uh, 1994 in Mm -hmm. uh, the fifth volume of Aquaman, where I think it was issue number 25, it involved uh, the five cities of Atlantis, where the world stage really understood his place as a monarch and a world ruler. And it established him not just as king of Atlantis, this fictitious kingdom at the bottom of the ocean, but as an actual political figure. Yes. So there's a lot of elements in Aquaman that have evolved over the years, not just power sets and character ideologies, but the actual mythos and political structure, because Arthur is a king. Yes. And he's a hero, but he's a king, and he's king of one of the largest kingdoms on Earth. And that small twist, that small change of acknowledgement of something that's been in the mythos all along, it it began the rising tide changing Aquaman forever and moving him away from his 1950s through 60s camp and began to give him the opportunity to evolve the character to what he is today. Exactly. So let's talk about, again, going back to his kingdom, because it's not just Atlantis is underwater. Through Mm -hmm. the course of Aquaman's history, there's actually been other hidden 
hidden kingdoms that he's discovered. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a time in the late 60s, his base of operations wasn't Atlantis. It was actually New Venice, a yes. piece of Venice that had actually sunk into the ocean. And the inha- the inhabitants there had kind of switch evolved into Atlanteans. Uh, in, the, in the 90s, the city of San Diego actually broke off and sunk into the yes. ocean and became Sub Diego. That's the origin of Tula. It is, in fact. So Sub Diego became kind of an annex of Atlantis. There's all kinds of other yes. versions. And when you start talking into, about the mythos of Atlantis itself, you find out there's a second Atlantean kingdom that was buried below new Atlantis or the current Atlantis. Yes. So there's a lot of really cool evolutions in political structure. And that's really what the, the modern world of oh, Aquaman yes. is about. Let's just tear right into the current mythos. Because the current mythos, the depth that has been added to it is mesmerizing. It's basically Game of Thrones in the water. Like, you have all these different class systems and factions of of the kingdom. Not only that, but you have the the emergence of the Silent School, which controls ancient Atlantean magic. And with things like the faction and the caste system, it introduced a lower class. And we introduced mutants in Atlantis, a whole new stage of people that are having next-level water evolutions that are merging with sea life. And they are completely lower caste who are being mistreated. And it's it's amazing, like I said, the depth that it's grown. So you have the the scholars, you have the Royal Lantean Society, you have the ruling houses. Talk about Game of Thrones. You got each one of your different ruling houses. Um, and each one of those houses has a specialty. There is the, the dirge, which is the, the military, like Marines uh, of Atlantis, the, the Royal Guard. They have the drift, which is the Atlantean Royal Navy. They've really stratified everything and gave us all these different factions that kind of play against each other. And there's little power struggles. But uh, with Arthur as king of them all, uh, except for right now. Uh, But it's really evolved the world of Aquaman, which is really what DC does. They've just been brilliant at adding all this dynamic to their, their characters and giving them opportunity to grow instead of following these same old classic tropes. And Aquaman is in the middle of that resurgence period where it's wonderful. So let's talk about where he's going right now. We'll talk well, about... Well, once I want to mention something yes. that you brought up. Absolutely. So you're talking about the the evolution of Atlantis as a character because for a long time in Aquaman comics, it was just kind of there. It was a backdropping. Yeah. It, but Atlantis now has a personality and now it now yes. functions as a plot device and not just a locale. Yes. Great point. Um, but it's interesting here. Let's talk about the kind of the evolution and how this happened. But a lot for a long time, Aquaman actually hasn't had an ongoing series. No. His first series was cancelled, uh, and then he became kind of a backup character in Adventure Comics, mm-hmm. which was kind of an anthology series for characters that couldn't support their own book. And until, the, I mean, he was eventually get his own book again in the 80s, and that only lasted about 12 issues, and then in the early 90s. But it wasn't until Volume 5 of Aquaman, where he had his longest run, extent, yeah. which was 75 issues, which we've actually just passed. Yeah. Um, now because of both the New 52 and Rebirth runs. Because he's awesome. Yep. So, yeah, he is. But a lot of that evolution you're talking about took place as background storylines in other books. Mm -hmm. Uh, Things like Justice League of America, where the story of his fall really occurred, Volume 5, before it it ended, um, he went through a massive change, both in terms of political structure in Atlantis and physically. He went through a big evolution. And the 90s were kind of known for that. It was the era of pushing the envelope. And Mm -hmm. a lot of really bad editorial. Got a hook hand. 
Yeah, we'll we'll talk about that. But a lot of bad editorial decisions were made in the '90s on both yeah. sides of the line. Both Marvel and DC were yeah. kind of guilty of pushing the envelope a little too far. But at the same time, where Superman was killed, Batman had his back broken, Wonder Woman lost her powers and was running around in a leather jacket and mm-hmm. weird outfit, um, we saw a lot of cool evolution in the second tier Justice League characters. But with Aquaman, they kind of calmed down on the Atlantean tensions. Yeah, it was really the first time in a while that his rule was undisputed yes there was no real conflict about oh he's a surface dweller at heart or no he's an atlantean they kind of went no he's aquaman he's he's in control of atlantis we're not going to focus on that and he started getting more involved in surface world conflicts which caused a dramatic reinvention of the character. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point, he was stripped of his aquatelepathy and unable to speak to, to sea life, yes. and he actually lost his his right hand uh, oh, to piranhas, of all things. Remember how I was saying yes. about bad editorial decisions in the 90s? Because somebody stole his aquatelepathy. Yeah, so he lost, he lost his right hand, and he had a hook fastened to it, a harpoon fastened to his right hand, or the stump of where his right hand used to be. Yarg, I be Aquaman. And... Grew a beard, grew long hair. He ditched the orange shirt and went with kind of a Baldrick uh, armored look. Mm-hmm. Very much became a, well, for lack of a better term, dirty pirate. Um, and that lasted for several years. But we saw some cool changes in his character. He eventually upgraded the harpoon to one where he had a like an automatic reel to it so he could actually... Grappling hook, hook harpoon. Grappling hook. It was very much a scorpion, you know, get over here kind of thing for him. Yeah. But a lot of that shifted in the mid-2000s after an event called Our Worlds at War. It was a massive uh, crossover event through the DC books, primarily in the Superman books, but it bled into Aquaman in a very real way because the entire city of Atlantis is destroyed, Mm -hmm. blown up. And there's actually a, a really awesome panel that is Superman has been trying to stop this war from occurring and he swims down to Atlantis because he knows Arthur's in danger and Arthur is in this amazing set of armor that quite honestly looks like it inspired Jason Momoa's costume from the new movie coming out and Arthur runs through this pure energy being with his trident unfortunately he doesn't know that it's going to blow up but you see Aquaman out there and he's he's fighting a whole legion of these things by himself it's an incredible moment, and Superman gets there just as this detonates. We lose all of Atlantis. Aquaman is believed dead, and there's Superman standing in a trench. The explosion was so big, it actually cleared all the water out. Yeah. And he's standing there in a trench holding Aquaman's smoking armor, declaring that if you want a war, you'll get a war. Mm-hmm. So at a lot of times, some of the most pivotal moments in Justice League history have been based around Aquaman, even if he isn't a central player in the storyline. That was a big momentum shift for yeah, Superman and actually led to building. a lot of lot of things. But let's talk about some of the secret history of Aquaman, because in the current mythos, uh, which really goes back to 2011 and the start of DC's New 52. And we'll talk about that shortly. Yeah. Um, you find out that Aquaman is a very different type of hero. Um, but before we really get into some of the current mythos, Mike, do you want to talk about some of that dual nature that we've mentioned before? And his Absolutely. And the, the, the dichotomy of his character is very unique because he's a hero, but he's also a ruler of a sovereign nation that we've told you covers the vast majority of the Earth. So he has more clout than any other ruler of Earth, or most of them are probably combined, really, because 73% of the Earth. And a lot of the other heroes don't understand that. Uh, Diana probably comes closest, but it's hard for him. It's a struggle, because not only does he have to balance what's the good for people all of Earth, but he's also the representative, like, chief magistrate of his people, and he has to represent and think about their uh, their issues and what can best benefit them. And, and a lot of the heroes, like I said, have struggled with that dichotomy. They just don't get it. They're like, what do you mean? Like, you should be with us 
100% always. And he's like, yes, you're my friends. You're Justice League. I'm a founder member of the Justice League. I understand the importance of this. I'm also the ruler of 73% of the Earth's surface. I have to take that into account. And you're like, oh, why are you mad at this? Like, they're poisoning our oceans. They're doing toxic waste. They're doing underground, underwater nuclear tests. There's all these problems. And I have no say, and I'm not a member uh, of the UN. I, I have, most people on the Earth don't even believe Atlantis exists. But y'all know me, and you, uh, like, he doesn't get the respect that he deserves for that. And there's several occasions, like he'll, you, the one you'll discuss about that, uh, about his relationship with Superman, being like, oh, yeah, this guy's also a king. Well, let's talk about that. Yes, that was, that's a great ahead. moment there. It takes place in uh, Superman 4 Tomorrow. Superman goes to Aquaman for help, but he doesn't show up as a friend. He just comes charging into Atlantis, and it puts Arthur in a position where he, ha he has to respond, not as a friend who is seeing his other friend coming to him in need, but as a king seeing a superpowered invader approaching his territory. Uh-huh. And Superman is, you know, coming at it at damn near light speed, and there's Arthur standing at the border of, Atlant of the city of Atlantis with his entire navy, trident in hand, on his mount, basically staring Superman down. Yep. And it's completely silent. There's no dialogue in this scene, but it's a beautiful splash page by Jim Lee that shows Superman approaching and halting, and there's Aquaman on that gigantic seahorse, and only Jim Lee could make a gigantic purple seahorse look intimidating, and it does. He does. Um, they're trident in hand, and all you see is this close-up panel of their eyes. Aquaman staring at Superman, Superman staring back, and Superman turns tail and leaves. And it's later in monologue where he says that I forced Arthur to respond as a king. Mm -hmm. And that right there is a really good example of that dual nature where he has to be both hero and king. He's the only character in DC Comics that has to consider what's worse, acting or not acting. And he's he's basically the Wakanda, he's basically Black Panther of the DC Universe. And we take we talked about nuance of Hulk in our, in our last episode. And when you take that extra layer of character development and depth to Aquaman, it really puts a lot more nuance in his character than a lot of the other DC heroes because at most the other DC heroes have have two personas they have their secret identity and their hero persona whereas our Aquaman is he's Arthur Curry and he's Aquaman and he is king of Atlantis and he has these three chapters of his personality that are, are have to blend together to make a good story and not a lot of people have been capable of that until now exactly let's so let's talk about the current mythos. You you hit it right on the mm -hmm. head by saying he's got these three elements to his personality, Arthur Curry, Aquaman, and the King of Atlantis, and how do you reconcile those? In DC's New 52 relaunch, which was their two set 2011 rebranding where they completely restarted everything. Mm -hmm. Continuity was thrown out the window. It was brand new origins, brand new storytelling for all their core heroes. And Aquaman was actually taken on by Jeff Johns. You want to fix something? You give it to Jeff Johns. True enough. Oh. Jeff Johns is the the god of DC mm. Comics. He is he national has a, treasure. He has an amazing ability to go in, and you can give him the most ridiculous plot ever, and he makes it amazing. Yep. But let's talk about his approach to Aquaman. As we started earlier in the episode, talking about stigma, the very he first straight into the wave of stigma. He did the Just very first issue of his Aquaman book in 2011 lines up. Every single Everyone. Aquaman joke and knocks him down. Just. There's an instance where people think he's weak. 
and he's literally got bullets bouncing off of him. Yep. People think the trident's stupid, and he manages to stab a armored truck in the grill and flip it. Yep. And Mira's constantly called Aquaman, and she's like, I hate that. My name's Mira. They, people constantly think, like, hey, aren't you a mermaid? Like, how does that work? Like, aren't, do you have legs now? And you, when you go in the water, you got, you got flippers? And people are constantly offering author glasses of water yes. from that stupid fucking water weakness that we finally got rid of but it's just it's acknowledging that god if jeff johns is as good at anything he's about acknowledging those flaws and saying facing him head on saying we're gonna fix him and it's it's great because he has to slowly win over the surface he grew up on the surface his whole life but now he grew up in amnesty bay amnesty bay lighthouse keeper Mm -hmm. and now he has the locals who like the local the local police won't work with them the local military won't work with them people in amnesty bay think he's a joke and it's him just looking all that stigma, all that, like, 40 years of stigma in the face and saying, no, I'm a Banff. I'm a badass motherfucker, and we're going to change this right now. Right? So let's talk about oh. the how how Jeff Johns tackles that. Because the first issue kind of lines up all the jokes and knocks them mm-hmm. down. But then it gets really, gets really subtle. Um, one of the best moments in that very first issue, he goes to essentially what is a Long John Silver's. For lunch. And he's there's Aquaman. Imagine this. There's Aquaman in all of his golden armored glory mm-hmm. sitting at a booth eating fish and chips. Trident amassed. And there's this blogger, this internet reporter. The, the, the restaurant freezes because they ask what, – what, the waitress is really nervous. She comes up and asks what he asked. And he goes like, fish and chips. And the whole restaurant freezes and everybody looks at him like, but you can't eat fish. You talk to fish. And he's just like <laughs> – like, no, I don't. I don't talk to fish. I command them. I command them. And yeah. that right there is cool enough because there's always the, all you do is talk to fish. Yeah. And no, he, he mm-hmm. tells them what to do. He doesn't ask permission. Also run Jeff Johns of the, the Justice League uh, in the very first issue when he shows up and Batman and them are like, what, what is he going to do? And there's parademons flying through the air at the bay. Sharks! <laughs> and then freaking all these great white sharks come up out of the water and just chomp and bite parademons in half. Uh, the Batman is like, oh, yeah, that'll work. Yeah. Don't piss Aquaman off. You know why? Sharks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he's sitting at this restaurant and this annoying it's internet annoying. guy, which was kind of a meta narrative for yeah. uh, people making fun of Aquaman. And this guy annoys him. So what does Arthur do? He makes his point very clear. Mm-hmm. He takes his trident out. And the interesting thing here is the waitress comes by. He pays for his meal and leaves, but he pays normally, but he tips her with two golden doubloons. Golden doubloons. So not only is he exceedingly powerful and a, a leader and a hero, he's Super also wide. one of the richest people yes. on the earth. Everything that's ever sunk in the ocean, that's Arthur's. He's genuine, too, in that moment, because she's talking to him and she's fumbling. She's like, I'm all your man. I don't know, this is so much to, to put me to, through. I'm just trying to put my kids through college. And after he puts the gold blooms out and leaves, and she walks out and after him, she's like, what am I supposed to do with these? And he goes, put your kids through college. And as a matter of fact, she becomes a reoccurring character. She does. Uh, later, there's a shopkeep uh, at the grocery store that helps Mira buy dog food and brings her groceries when Mira has some stumbling blocks dealing with surface world issues. And it's that's why I love... Because you have these big picture moments and this giant mythos and all these factions of Atlantis. But then you also have this hometown feel, kind of like Superman in Smallville with him in Amnesty Bay, where he grew up, he knows the shop clerk, he went to school with her, and he he has a relationship with this waitress, and he knows the local the deputy. The sheriff deputy. Yes, it's It allows you to tell big wonderful. mythic stories and also small community stories. It keeps the heart. It really does. Throughout the New 52, Aquaman is constantly reinvented. 
needed uh, in, in his own series. It is very much mm-hmm. he is a powerhouse. He deserves respect. We're going to show you that issue over issue over issue. And during the New 52, and there was a lot of creator mix up and stuff. Aquaman was one of the best selling books. It was like that and Batman were yeah. the, the two front runners. But during New 52, we also learned kind of a secret chapter of Aquaman's history through a book called Aquaman and the Others, where you mm-hmm. find out that he essentially formed his own superhero team, and they were all powered by Atlantean Atlantean artifacts. artifacts. And that actually led directly into uh, the first real major event in the New 52. So Throne of Atlantis was the first real event in the New 52. It crossed over between Justice League and the Aquaman books. And quite simply, Atlantis invades. The the Atlantis determines that the surface world can no longer be trusted, and they Mm -hmm. invade. It all starts off because there is an unmitigated, unprovoked attack on Atlantis by a USS uh, destroyer that launches missiles into the water and we find out who the perpetrator was later because it's just believed to be an accident files missiles into the water directly into atlantis territory and explodes harming and destroying some atlantean buildings and people exactly and so they're like this is it the surface world has been terrible they've poisoned us and at this i might add at this time the it was still not acknowledged by the surface world that atlantis even exists no it was a it was a military secret yes so orm invades he brings the Atlantean army to bear on the United States, actually wipes out um, one of the coastal cities. I can't remember which one off the top of my head. Uh, just flat out floods it and wipes it off the earth. I might add, he does this by following the Atlantean uh, rules of war code, which him and Arthur both wrote together. Yes. So it's it's Aquaman's own plan of retaliation that's being used against. So it's just an extra weight of responsibility. Exactly. Very much along the lines of Tower of Babel when Batman's mm-hmm. protocols were used against the Justice League. Yes. So this is occurring and the entire world points the finger at Aquaman. Mm-hmm. Even though it's his brother Orm leading the army, suddenly he's got enemies on both sides. The Atlanteans won't heed him even though he is the rightful king and Orm is acting as regent. He still has the authority to stop this. Yes. And he orders them to stop, and they disregard him. Yep. The Justice League is caught in the middle and is trying to stop it, and Arthur pretty much tells them to stay out of it. This is my fight, which leads to one of the best moments in the New 52. Yeah. Superman tries to kind of put an arm on him and stop him, and Knocks Arthur him sends out. him flying. Yep. A single punch and sends Superman flying. It just They don't understand. And Arthur's trying to... And that's the duality. He's trying to explain. He's like, Atlantis had an unprovoked attack. They don't, it doesn't matter if it was a mistake or not. We haven't proven that yet. And there are Atlantean citizens' deaths. Like, they they seek justice. And, and Orm, he calls him out to the, the Ocean Master. And he comes and he talks to him to parlay with him. And he's like, just give me a chance. And Batman and Superman, they won't. And Batman finally attacks Orm. Arthur's like, what have you done? I told you to let me handle this. You don't know anything about Atlantean politics or Atlantean law or anything about my people. My people are the predominant people of this planet. We own more land and, and territory than anybody else. Let me handle this. You're not acknowledging me or giving me the respect as a ruler of these people. Let me handle it. And they just don't trust him. As Justice League members, they can't take that chance. And they won't give him it. And as a king, Arthur can't let this attack go unanswered. So Arthur goes from trying to stop the war to being forced to win the war. Yes. And this is a theme that's been played with before. And it gets played with again in the the Rebirth series and kind Mm -hmm. of a different angle. But it's the best example of Arthur's dual nature and how he has to struggle between being a hero and being a king. And in some moments, one side or the other has to win out. Absolutely. He does avert the war and he it forces him to reclaim the title the of, of 
king of Atlantis. He has to return to the throne in order to keep the peace. And it's heartbreaking because they are brothers and they do love each other. And Orm, he had grown up his entire life hearing his brother was being held captive by these surface war dwellers. And that's why he grew up in the military and he became a soldier and took the regent of, of king to be able to go rescue his brother. Like, that's how much he loved him. And he finally was... Arthur came back to Atlantis, and he was so happy to be with his brother that he was so hurt again when he went back and chose the surface world over him of those people, those horrible people that chose them over him. But he still loves Arthur, and that's why he wanted to come back. And it even when he comes aboard, uh, when he comes to the land, he even thinks that Arthur must be the ruler of these people, and the Justice League must be his servants, because he's king of Atlantis. He's So surely, if he's not king here, he must be king of the surface world. It's heartening. And it's just this really crushing scene after the throne of Atlantis when Orm, for his crimes of attacking the city, has to go to military jail. It's just heartbreaking because he's sitting alone in the cell and he's just like, I just want to save my brother. And he's just in his cell and he's like, I just wanted to save my brother. And he goes up to the bar and he's like, I just want to see my brother. Can you bring my brother here? Can I talk to him? It's just heartbreaking. It really but is. No, he's. It's like nobody wins. But anyways, into the frenemies. We found out the whole thing was orchestrated by Volko because he wanted Arthur to be king again. Exactly. Ugh. Yeah. It's a very weighty storytelling, and that actually carries into the the rebirth timeline mm-hmm. and now the newer adventures of Aquaman where has established an embassy an Atlantean embassy yes. on the surface in Amnesty Bay he is trying to unite the two halves of his life he is trying to bring the surface world to Atlantis and Atlantis to the surface world he gets representation at the UN he goes he talks with the, with the president a second war is averted because now everybody knows Atlantis is real they've seen Arthur is a superhero and he very much goes through this phase of like I have to prove myself to them and that's culminated in the new rebirth run there's a new syndicate of kind of like people in the behind Called the scenes Nemo Nemo and they send the Shaggy Man now if you're not familiar with the Shaggy Man Shaggy Man is a scientific created creature that continues to evolve and adapt he's, he's kind of like DC's version of the Hulk yes um, he adapt was, whatever thrown at him he was an experiment gone awry that resulted in a kind of monstrous super soldier and to Michael's point the Shaggy Man is sent specifically after Arthur yes he's sent to kill him the Shaggy Man goes straight through Atlantis and they, they can't stop him and he they finally goes through Atlantis and he realizes he's heading to Amnesty Bay. He's like, I have to do this. I have to stop Shaggy Man by myself to show them that I am a hero. And in this particular issue that Mike's referencing, Aquaman fights Shaggy Man pretty much. He almost beats him to death. Yeah. And Arthur himself is almost near dead oh, and yeah, wakes he's... up to the Justice League standing at his bed. And he assumes they're there to arrest him. Mm-hmm. And you find out they're really just there to ensure that their friend is okay. So you start to see that now the Justice League is starting to see Arthur in a new light. While certain members of the League always saw him in that way, now collectively they acknowledge yes. that Arthur is equal parts king and hero. And that goes th- throughout uh, the, the current run. But let's talk about where we are currently in the books, mm-hmm. in which Arthur has actually been usurped. Yes. He has been cast down from the throne of Atlantis. He's believed dead. And um, Michael mentioned earlier the Silent School, which is kind of like Atlantean Hogwarts, yep. have sworn allegiance to the usurper and have... Could there not be a cooler sentence? What are you reading in your comics? Well, this is his Atlantean Hogwarts. It's just like, Aquaman is so cool! <laughs> he really is. In the new storytelling, Atlantis is essentially preparing for war against the surface world. And it's been taken over by an isolationist and a nationalist who wants to use all the means of magic and military might of Atlantis against the surface world. And he, they've erected a, a magic barrier that has blocked all Atlantis off from the rest of the world. In fact, as my 
Jack referenced earlier, there's an issue of Justice mm-hmm. League where Mera, Arthur's betrothed, who previously believed him to be dead but now knows him to be alive and trapped within Atlantis, is trying to break through the barrier. And she's an aquakinetic. Mera has the ability to control water. And she's attacking the barrier with the entirety of the, the ocean. entire ocean. Yes. And she causes a massive superstorm that causes the Justice League to intercede because she is essentially throwing the entire ocean at this ma- magical barrier trying she to get back. She wants her man back. Exactly. And she almost gets through. And in fact, in, the, in recent issues, she is on her way to Atlantis. She's called on Garth uh, as he was a member of the Silent School to help use his magic uh, to break through. That's where we're currently That's at. That's where we're currently at. And Mera is on her way to Atlantis. There's a secret, uh, now another coup taking mm-hmm. place because now the people in Atlantis see the the evil that this new king is, uh, King Wrath is and capable who's, of. who's that coup's being helped along by, funny enough? Volko! What do you know? <laughs> uh, so there's another coup rising. Uh, Arthur is alive and s- still functioning as Aquaman down mm-hmm. in the very trenches of Atlantis, defending the poor and downtrodden. And uh, the new king is ruled that all Atlanteans should be pure Atlanteans. It's a very nationalistic, isolationist, uh, superior race thing kind of going on. All the bad stuff that you can think of in dictatorships. So he's acting as this wraith. They call him the wraith or the revenant uh, of the of the dead king. Uh, and he's interceding and uh, just trying to help the little people because the king's mad and he's in martial law and, and with an iron fist and it's it's hurting the people at the bottom. And he's really getting to see his kingdom for the first time and all the tears and the depth that it has and, and, uh, and relating to his people and seeing how he failed as leader of Atlantis because it was taken from him because it was the people. And he really sees now how he failed some of his people by spending too much time away and not really seeing their plight. And it's really a learning opportunity. It's a learning opportunity for him and for them because they're starting to see him as the hero yes. that the surface world got. It's very classic Arthurian of seeing the king laid low and understanding his, his people. Mm-hmm. So we also have another element here called the sisterhood. And they're pretty much the, the soothsayers. Mm-hmm. Arthur was forbidden to marry Mera because there was a prophecy that she would be the Red Queen mm-hmm. and would destroy both the surface world and Atlantis after Arthur fell. Well, Arthur has fallen mm-hmm. and that prophecy has been proven wrong. So now the sisterhood is trying to bring Mera into Atlantis because they believe her to be the savior of Atlantis they because be queen. <laughs> they don't know that Arthur's alive. Yes. So it's it's really conflicting from an audience standpoint because right now most compelling character in the Aquaman books is kind of Mera. Yes. I mean Arthur is just uh, as complex and amazing, but but Mera has really been g- gaining story potential. In fact, she is actually serving on the Justice League in his stead. Yes. Well, we got to take a minute to uh, mention we've talked about uh, this briefly before. Stefan Sajek is currently is illustrating Aquaman the last four issues, and it is some of the most beautiful art we've ever seen, and it really makes Atlantis a character like we've talked about before. It's just gorgeous, and and with that, we have another really compelling character that's come along, and Joe's really liking her, and her name is Dolphin. Mm-hmm. She has been reinvented here in Rebirth. She is one of the mutated cast of Atlantis. She actually has bioluminescent abilities mm-hmm. and is serving as kind of Arthur's aqua girl while he's trapped and is really defending the lower p- pieces of Atlantis. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, to save her in a recent issue, he actually outed himself as King Orin. Yep. So she's become a really interesting character. Um, thankfully, they haven't been trying to play up any romantic tension. No, it's been very, really it's been it's very much master respect. and apprentice. Yeah. And she has saved his life as much as, as he has saved hers. So she has definitely earned her, her spot in the Aquaman family. 
let's uh, recommend some ways to read him. I'll start off here. Um, the new 52 Aquaman. Mm. Read it. It is exactly... 52 issues. It was originally done by Jeff Johns, and then he left the book, and it was taken over uh, by kind of a cast of writers. Uh, then, actually, Cullen Bunn had a short run on the book and really reinvented Aquaman even further, turning him into kind of an Aqua Thor, mm-hmm. uh, really playing up the mysticism and powers that he had uh, because of the Trident, made him kind of Lord of the Sea and Storm. I mean, those runs were amazing. Jeff Johns, again, does an incredible job reinventing man. the character, um, and every Everything about the New 52 run is, and Cullen Bunn, while having a short run before Dan Abnett picked it up to carry it into to Rebirth, did a, a lot of cool things with the book. And I'm going to take it from right there, because what I'm going to recommend is Dan Abbott's run. So you can uh, you can start where Joe left and pick up right up and come into Mike, because Dan Abbott's run has been phenomenal. Like I've said, he, currently he's expanding the Mesos. It's a renaissance for, for Aquaman. His world and universe and his character persona, all of it is growing in wonderful new directions and engaging ways, most importantly. And it sets a new status quo for Aquaman and it, it is one of the few issues that I literally can't wait for the next issue. Every issue I read of Dan Abbott's Aquaman, especially with Steven Jack's artwork, I, I just like I, it can't come soon enough. And it used to be a, a bi-weekly and it's moved to a monthly now, which I was sad about, but if, if that's what I, if I have to wait a month just to get Steven Jack's art and Dan Abbott's tight story work, I'm, I'm willing to wait and so should you because this is a phenomenal story and a phenomenal character we we hear the whole joseph could not recommend him more and uh thank you for listening to us today guys yep that wraps us for uh, this week's episode tune in next week everybody